Claude, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. We welcome everybody back, especially you, Claude. Well, thank you. I feel welcome. To the thank Bill you. Bennett Show. It's not your first time. No, no. It's but, not. Uh, we try to have thoughtful conversation, Claude and I, mm-hmm. and other people. Sure. About the news of the day, and we address the existential threats to America, and there are plenty of them. Joining me today, Joel Farkas. We were going to double up with Joel and another guest, but Joel sent me his agenda. He's got so many things to talk about. <laughs> He's going to educate us about energy, about oil, about water, mm-hmm. uh, about demographics, uh, amazing stuff. He is uh, a director of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Uh, let me talk about a few things first, though. As I talked to you, I was on uh, TV this morning mm-hmm. talking about schools and reopening. First of all, let's remember uh, where we're having this conversation and when the impeachment is over. Mm -hmm. So that drama is done. We have an expression in America we call uh, the elephant in the room, Mm -hmm. you know, which is, you know, you can't ignore the elephant in the room. Donald Trump's the elephant, appropriately enough, Republicans, (laughs) elephants, you know. Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump is out of the room now. Maybe not permanently. He's in the parlor, (laughs) the ante room, (laughs) in the foyer. Right. And he may come back in the room. Perhaps. But for the moment, he's out of the room. Democrats wanted the impeachment thing because they love beating up on Donald Trump. First of all, in itself, they just love it. They just Mm -hmm. hate him. And second, they thought, you know, good reminder of the American people to talk about his shortcomings, January 6th and so on. Very bad day. We all agree to that. And bad judgment by the president there, though he wasn't inciting an insurrection. But it also had the benefit for the Democrats of keeping us focused on Donald Trump rather than other things. Mm -hmm. Now we can focus on the Biden administration, what it's doing about China, immigration, education. Uh, And and so I was talking about education. So now uh, the head of CDC, Rachel Walensky, who had said a couple weeks ago, you know, get him back in school, get him back in the classroom. Now saying, well, you know, we have to take measures. You have to get new ventilation equipment. How long? See, if you do ventilation equipment in a big city, that means you got to do contract out, right? You got to have bidding. Right. Yeah. Got to go for some union group. We go back. It's not going to happen in two weeks, right? No, no not maybe, at all. Maybe a year. Maybe, maybe a year. So the kids are out of school. Mm-hmm. This is a catastrophe for these children. Now, the interviewer this morning said to me, "Apparently, study shows these kids are gaining weight." I said, "Gaining weight—that's the least of their problems." Mm-hmm. Psychological problems, uh, all, all sorts of uh, separation from their friends, causing anxiety. I just heard Dr. Marty McCary from mm-hmm. uh, Johns Hopkins say 10 times as many kids commit suicide as die from COVID. Uh, we got serious problems. Uh, and about a, th- a zillion times as many kids lose math skills as die from COVID. And losing math skills matters. Right. And losing reading skills matters. Mm-hmm. You know, 75% of the kids in Chicago schools are minority kids, poor minority kids. They're getting shafted. Wealthy parents are finding a way. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Tutors, private schools, parochial schools. But I would, again, point to the Catholic schools. A couple of differences between the Catholic schools and the big city public schools. One, did you know that the average pay differential is about $20,000? Oh, wow. Between the Catholic school and the public school. Public schools, teachers make more. Mm -hmm. That's one difference. Catholic school teachers make $20,000 less, and they're in the classroom. They're actually right. teaching. Yeah, they're in there. And the big city schools are not. Now, a lot of teachers in America are teaching, you know, rural America, red state America. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've always liked teachers. And I, always, I think most teachers are actually up, up, up to the job, mm-hmm. you know, at least adequately. But the organizations they join, these unions, terrible. Uh, you know, I was asked this morning on TV, how much power do they have? I said, let me put it this way. If Joe Biden got the head of NEA, National Education Association, and the head of the American Federation of Teachers on the phone and said, I want you to stop, I want you to open the schools, you know what they'd say? Well, think about it. Mm. They would not say, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. They would not say, okay, Mr. President, because that's the kind of power they have. Right. John Adams, liberty when men act in bodies is power. Mm-hmm. Power. They have power. Big part of the Democratic power base is uh, these teachers' unions, and it's terrible what they're doing. You know, these uh, Catholic school teachers report much greater job satisfaction, too. Sure. For less money. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, certainly don't have a benefits package. But uh, they're engaged in, Robertson Davies calls the uh, saving of souls and the architecture of the mind, you know. Mm-hmm. It's a sad situation. I feel so bad for these kids. Mm-hmm. So bad for these kids. 
You know, been out since last March. You may not be back till September. Maybe not till after September. So come up with another reason if they don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Oh, the Lincoln Project. These are the Trump haters. The audience knows I'm, I like Donald Trump. Not everything he does, but I thought it's good president, great policies. And I don't think there's a Republican Party identity crisis. There's momentary, you know, nervousness, but policies are clear. You just pick up what Trump did on taxes, foreign policy, working class, China, and, you know, get a new person to carry the banner. But 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 the Lincoln Project is people running these ads, very strong, very effective ads. But I, I noticed they were just very mean and very personal about Josh Hawley, about Ted Cruz. There was kind of ugliness about them. Mm-hmm. Now it turns out there was ugliness at the core. Yeah. This Lincoln yeah. Project, the head of it, with 14 circumstances or situations where he was communicating with boys. Right. Yeah. And young men mm-hmm. about sexual relations. One of them a 14-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. Real ugliness at the core. I have to say it. I think it showed in some of their ads. It's something like, gosh, you know, I've seen tough ads, but these were so personal, so angry, so you know, designed to just slice somebody up. Megan McCain really blasted these guys, Weaver and Schmidt and these others. They, cause they used to work for John McCain. You know, the Lincoln Project supposedly, you know, disenchanted Republicans. A lot of them are. But uh, she said, you know, I wouldn't spit on these guys if they were on fire. mm uh, she's just so disgusted by it. Oh, it looks like they may be getting their just desserts, and maybe um, maybe Governor Cuomo too, huh? Right. About that. I saw that over the weekend. Uh, yeah. Not see if they just report it. Apparently, they're mm-hmm. not reporting it on CBS and ABC. Right. <laughs> they love Cuomo. Mm-hmm. What a world! Not because the whole thing was about the numbers, right? Not reporting numbers, the numbers yeah, correctly. Not reporting with, the numbers uh, about yeah. people being sent in nursing homes mm-hmm. and. Uh, Scary when the world's so upside down. A guy gets an award, he has Emmys, and writes a book, how he did it, and maybe he has, maybe he's the worst governor. Mm-hmm. Let's talk to Joel Farkas. You're listening to the Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Okay, let's welcome Joel Farkas back to the show. He's a director of the American Strategy Group. I am a fellow at the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Mr. Farkas, educate us. Uh, XL pipeline, no drilling on federal lands. What does this mean? What do they mean in themselves, and what do they augur for other things? What's happening here? Is this the dawn of something new that we uh, need to dread? A lot is happening. There's a lot to dread, but let's just start with what happened. Um, First uh, day or two in office, uh, President Biden uh, signed an executive order to basically cease construction of the Keystone XL pipeline. And what that did was uh, decimate Canada. It was designed to transport somewhere around 800,000 to 900,000 barrels of oil per day, mainly from uh, Canada and Alberta, to go through the uh, United States down to our refineries in the Gulf Coast, which is where uh, those refineries are set up to be able to handle the grade of uh, petroleum, crude petroleum that Canada produces. Uh, It's a heavier grade than what we produce in the United States. It's similar to what Venezuela produces, and Venezuela has refineries in uh, in the Gulf Coast. So it basically um, eliminated the completion of Keystone Pipeline. It um, damaged tremendously Canada more than anyone. Can I interrupt yeah. you on that? Because I thought yes. I did, you, second time you said decimated Canada. I've heard people say, "Well, Canada will now just sell it to somebody else." No, no. Uh, Canada then has to has to build another pipe either to the east coast or the west coast. I see. The British Columbia and the west coast. And Canada produces their oil predominantly in Alberta, which is in the center, in the Rocky Mountains, just like where Texas and Colorado and everyone goes straight up and down. And um, that's where they produce their oil. Gotcha. uh, Next to Saudi Arabia and Venezuela, they're the third largest reserves of oil in the world. And we just basically turned Canada. And now, you know, that's what happened. That's, that's, That's what happened. Wow. Canada just got killed. Did they get a heads up on this? Oh, um, yes. <laughs> they, there was no question in Canada what would happen to the Keystone Pipeline um, uh, if either oh. Trump was elected or Biden was elected. The, yeah. the heads up was that simple. Got it. Got it. All right. Well, that's okay. What about federal lands? So the other thing that um, 
uh, President Biden did in his first uh, week or so in office is he started with a secretarial order, which uh, put a 60-day moratorium on on new permits on federal land. And then he followed that up with an executive order saying that no new permits on federal lands will occur uh, until a study is implemented and reviewed to determine impact. Um, so that's Washington speak for first we're going to stop for 60 days. Then we're going to we're going to say we're going to do a study. And you know what that means in Washington when you do a study. It goes into the graveyard and the boneyard of studies. Um, so what that basically did, though, that applies to federal land, uh, things like uh, Indian reservations, for instance, um, you know, the, the other kinds of federal lands, the, the offshore um, uh, drilling. What it does not apply to, though, is private lands. That has nothing to do with private land, nor does it have anything to do with all of the permits, more than 7,000 permits that have already been issued by two oil and gas companies to drill on federal land. So um, it's, a, it's a sign that the Biden administration would like to cease this activity, but it's not going to cease the permits that have been issued, and it's not going to affect private land drilling. How do you sort this out, Joel, in terms of the larger question, which kind of haunted the campaign? You know, uh, drilling, fracking, um, it was a big deal in Pennsylvania, you know, <laughs> those borders we've talked about on the radio show, the border there between Pennsylvania and New York, you know, the towns in Pennsylvania yeah. where they're fracking are, you know, doing great, and, and, and the towns on the just, you know, a few hundred yards away on the New York side are doing terribly. They don't have fracking. Does this suggest a hostility to fossil fuel? Eventually, are we going to see more limitations on oil exploration, fracking? What do you see this? Again, I I take it from Canada, from what you said, using the verb decimate, it's been a disaster already, Uh, harmful to us, harmful obviously to at least 11,000 people who were employed. But, uh, again, does this predict something larger that's to come? Yes. Uh, this, is a, uh, um, uh, this, is a political, this is a political issue that I think um, we need to make sure that people understand what that means. Um, and let's talk about the, briefly the practical issue. Uh, all over the country, because of the cold weather, um, there are, um, you know, fr- from Texas to Colorado, the Flat River uh, Power Authority have, have issued um, warnings to people, uh, reduce their electricity consumption because the, uh, the electric uh, uh, power generated from solar and from, from wind turbines are being frozen. They don't have it. And then because of the fact that there's no wind and solar contribution to the grid, the, the, the natural gas usage is being drawn down very quick proportions. So basically, around the country, people are hearing and getting notices from the utility provider, reduce your utility consumption if you can because of the ridiculousness of how the power is supplied to the grid. That's the practical implication. Uh, You mentioned Pennsylvania. Most of the fracking, most of the fossil fuels produced there is through gas. Um, I mean, it is gas. It's the Marcellus Shale and others. Um, That gas would, would supply um, utility companies and the grid uh, very efficiently and very economically. But when you shut down more of that production, you're going to find um, what I just said, um, uh, cold weather, disasters, rolling blackouts, reduced usage. But your other question, which was, I think, more important, is what, what what's going to happen and what are the political implications of this and what's happening around the world. Um, in the same, what's happening here is that there is an assault on American domestic production of fossil fuels and an assault on fossil fuel productions in Europe and uh, and, and North America. Now, the same week, the same week that these executive orders that we just talked about were signed, um, the Biden administration has is delaying a report which would identify companies that have, should, have, that have sanctions on them for contributing to the Russian Nord Stream 2 pipeline. They are delaying issuing that report. Russia is aggressively starting construction again that the Trump administration stopped to finish that pipeline. And Germany, our supposed ally, has been lobbying Congress aggressively to, to say to Congress, eliminate any restrictions or sanctions on companies participating in this Nord Stream 2 pipeline. The same week that we just 
shut down the Keystone Pipeline. The Nord Stream 2 Pipeline is a Russian pipeline under the Baltic Sea, directly oh, to move gas from Russia to Germany. And that, 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 in the middle of all this climate activism, that pipeline is aggressively being restarted by the same people lecturing the United States on the Paris Climate Accords. So it seems like less like we're opposed to opposed to pipelines than we're opposed to America. I mean, you know, I mean, how how do you make this coherent? This is not a coherent worldview. I mean, it's not okay here for Canada and the U.S., but it's fine for Russia and Germany. We just had 200 actors and actresses from Hollywood applauding the, the, the stopping of the Keystone Pipeline and saying, do it again, do more. I would like for every single one of them to go to St. Petersburg and Moscow and Berlin and do the same thing and stand there and don't leave until you get Vladimir Putin to cease construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I I will personally pay um, private jet aircraft for all 200 of them to go there and do not leave Moscow until you get Putin to stop it and get Angela Merkel to stop it and to get the German ambassador to Washington, who for the last year and a half has been lobbying Congress to eliminate sanctions for companies that participate in this pipeline. What what does this suggest? I mean, in terms of their ultimate, uh, you know, uh, ambition or uh, motivation. I mean, you know, it's easy to understand, not agree with, but it's easy to understand if they're, you know, anti-fracking, anti-fossil fuel, anti-natural gas, but to be anti that here but pro that there doesn't make any sense at all those are the repercussions you know, a, a, a cowardice is a is a is a, is a byproduct of it if the hypocrisy is a byproduct of it um you know but but actually it makes sense if you think of it this in the, if you think of it that it's really just purely about power and control who is who has the power who has the control that when you think of it that way then a lot of this makes perfect sense it is not good for people that are not part of your group. And, and by the way, who are these people? Um, it's really important you know, for a politician to make sure that a, a government has control and people do not. The easiest way to control a whole bunch of people all over the world is to control where they get their water, where they get their energy, and where they live, and and how they live. You know, are they living in a house? They live in a high rise in a city. If you have people condensed and aggregated in a small area, and 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 their transportation, public transportation, let's add that to the mix. If somebody controls their transportation, their power, their water, and the weight and the places they can live, that is the motivation. And if you do it, if you, and that's how, that's why these issues seem so bizarre and hypocritical and full of cowardice, except they are the mechanism to, to uh, seize power and control and retain it. Um, look, Bill Gates, Bill Gates is, um, he gets written up by, and there's a particular reporter named Catherine, I can't remember her last name. She spends, I think, every month writing some sort of wonderful article about Bill Gates and, and his his you know, his friends, about how wonderful they are to help the climate and how wonderful they are in investing in sustainability and all the great things that they do and the investments they make to save the world and how they are getting their minds around the climate catastrophe, looming catastrophe. Um, and Bill Gates um, also happens to be the owner of the largest, by far the, the, the largest owner of Canada National Railway. He owns three times more than anybody else. What is, and Canada National Railway just got a, a, a listed on this annual listing of the most sustainable co- uh, companies, 100 most sustainable companies in the world. One of the top companies. Now, what is Canada, why did they get that, that why did they get that uh, award? Well, they say from a transportation standpoint, the steel on steel, the metal, the metal uh, uh, wheels and the metal rails it's the most efficient form of transportation, which is why it's such a wonderful company. But what does Canada National Railway transport? They transport oil. They transport coal. They transport fertilizer from petroleum products. They're entire. They're, they're substantially the greatest 
source of revenue that this company has is from fossil fuels. Now, who is also the biggest opponent of the Keystone Pipeline? Bill Gates. Why? You put it in a pipe, you no longer need to transport it by rail. And he has support of his good of his bridge partner, Warren Buffett, on the same topic. Warren Buffett owns Burlington Northern Santa Fe. This is about control and power, and people support and write idiotic articles about how sustainable and how what contributors to climate these people are. It's 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 nonsense. These factors you've talked about, or other factors, introduce them into the conversation. If if you, if you need to raise the price of oil, it not only will raise the price of oil; it has raised. Um, October thirty first, two days before the election, oil uh, West Texas Intermediate crude was selling for thirty six dollars and ninety cents a barrel. Today, it's more than sixty dollars a barrel. Okay. In the first hundred days of office. I mean, excuse me, first 100 days since the election. Instead of the first, what's he going to do? What's the president going to do the first 100 days in office? Here's what happened the first 100 days since the election. Oil went from $36.97 a barrel to more than $60 a barrel. $23 increase. And it's headed probably to 100. Really? I can't. By the way, I'm not going to be like... uh, uh, what's his name? George Clooney saying Donald Trump will never be president. I'm not going to make a prediction like that because I, I can't predict the future. However, um, oil has has. It's not going to. It has increased. And the idea that it will continue to increase is more certain than it ever has been. And why? Um, if you, with a stroke of a pen, say, I'm going to reduce and restrict not only the drilling and exploration for fossil fuels in, 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 in the country, and then you're going to say, I'm going to impose sanctions on companies around the world that drill and produce fossil fuels, and then I'm going to re- restrict any kind of transportation, new transportation pipelines for that um, fossil fuel, that is going to say the supply is going to be reduced. Yeah. And then when you add the fact that we're coming out of the pandemic and the demand is going to increase, that's why oil is going up. We are the world's leading producer of natural gas, is that correct? Yes. Will we yeah. stop will we stop being that? We're not going it's not going to happen. Uh, the answer is no. Um, because all of this focus by environmentalists and, and, and the current president is going to try to stop it. But it's a very hard thing to stop immediately. And the practical reason is when you when you look at how less, how more efficient and how less expensive um, natural gas is compared to any other uh, energy source, no one's going to stop using it. Now, here's what you can do when you when you have something like the Paris Climate. You can shame developed company, country, uh, countries in Europe and the United States to not do it, but you're not going to shame India or China yeah. from using fossil fuels. Yeah. They're going to use them, yeah. and they are going to be—they are the largest increasing user of them. So that's not going to stop. Which means coal is not going to stop as a fuel source. China uses more coal than every other country in the world combined. Huh. India will use fuel, gas, and coal. Um, by the way, Germany—a sub- substantial amount of their energy for the utility companies—is from still coal. So it's not going to stop the the the, the the, the people who graduated journalism school who, who like to write about it, they're going to continue to write about it. But if you look at any kind of chart from the 1980s to today, more than 40 years, um, you will see that the worldwide usage of fossil fuels has maintained almost a, a steady rate of about 81 to 82 percent of the fuel source powering the world. It hasn't changed since the 80s. Wow. Wow. And it won't change much. Not going to. Amazing. All, all that's going to change. All that's going to change is the price. Yeah, people are going to get rich who Joe and Biden doesn't want to get rich, right? <laughs> Isn't that correct? The people he hates the most. What he has just done in the last hundred days to help the people he despises the most. If he actually did the math, he'd puke. Texas oilmen, right? Yep. Um, yeah. You know yep. the the middle Middle Eastern countries, Texas oilmen, Russia. By the way. You, my God, you want you want you want to know who a Russian puppet is? We just we just we just balanced the budget of Russia in the last hundred days. God knows collusion. 
Sounds like collusion to me. Excuse yeah, the expression. Yeah, we need a, we need a, need a special <laughs> investigator. <laughs> Guys, people, I mean, it's, just, it's, it's stunning. It's stunning. It is stunning. You mentioned water uh, earlier. Uh, does water fit into this equation somehow, or is this an entirely different subject? Uh, it's a, no, it's it's uh, it's exactly the subject. It's the same subject. Um, two ways to control a population: you control what they, they got to drink water 365 days a year, and they have to have energy 365 days a year. And uh, so, water is uh, you know, if you want to um, uh, control, if you're a, if you're a, a, a an urbanist, a liberal left-wing activist urbanist saying the world needs to have people confined in major urban centers and not live dispersed around the country or the world. The best way to, to make that policy correct and real and implemented is to say the only people who get water are metropolitan water districts in those areas. But if people have water, which by the way, water is all over the place. And if you live where the water source is, then you're going to have a dispersed population. And so water is tremendously important. And what we are seeing all over the country is a, is a recoiling of small towns and rural areas and, and, and uh, exurban areas saying to these big metropolitan areas, you are not going to poach our water any longer. We are going to keep it here and we're going to fight you from taking it and transporting it to your city. And that's the next set of um, kind of internal disputes that I think we'll see in this country. Is there anything you can point to now, such a dispute, California or someplace where this fight is going on? Um, yeah, I mean, it's been going on actually in California for 100 years, Colorado River. Um, there's seven states that have a compact that use it. Right. And they're constantly fighting each other as to who gets what they get and how you how you measure it, how you calculate it. And uh, um, but I'll tell you where where uh, those are where the fights are. But where the good where the good stuff is happening is in all the small towns in the middle part, that the not the coastal, but everywhere other than the coastal part of America, they are much more aware and attuned to the water resource they have, and they are working on and using it for their own region. And it's happening in Utah. It's happening in Colorado. It's happening um, in, in Texas, all over Texas. Um, even in places where they have a lot of water in you know, Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas, Alabama, they're being more more aware of how they keep it and use it to allow um, growth all over the country, not just in concentrated areas. Now we're coming from another angle into a conversation, Joel, that you and I, the audience, have had before which is uh, demographics and the changing shape of America and the movement of Americans from one set of places to another set of places. Over the weekend, you pointed me to an article by Joel Kotkin and a a co-author, and Joel's been on this podcast, actually he's been on with you, about the trends away, vectors, tendencies away from urbanization, from the big cities, uh, to more rural areas, something you've talked about in other contexts because... You know, as you've said, people want to flee L.A. so they can get a house, uh, you know, live in a house that's affordable, have some land and, um, you know, not be totally dependent on the civic authorities. Um, This article talks about, at least it begins, um, I I, I read, I'd say probably half of it, uh, the first half pretty carefully, the, the second half not so. You've read it. Very carefully, but it sounds to me like it was that you wrote it. Um, I, I don't. I'm not accusing them of of, uh, of stealing it, but I mean, it, it sounds very Farkas-like to me. But it starts out by talking about COVID and the effect of COVID, and one of the effects of COVID is to let me use the word. It's a you know a, a new word, a, a new word, I guess, uh, neologism. Um, deurbanization. One, one effect of COVID may be that will be will have fewer Parises and more rural uh, towns thriving. Fair enough, and if so, explain. Yeah, yes, no, absolutely. Yes, um, you know, we we talked about resources, energy, and water as a way to concentrate people. Well, some of the and that's for for control. But the the the, the byproduct of that is if you have a whole, uh, you know, you look at areas of 
how many people per square mile, um, and, they, and that's how they decide how big a city is and what category they, they're in. The more people you put in per square mile, whether it's on public transportation, high-rise buildings, office buildings, um, or, or high-rise uh, residential buildings, it is quite clear that if there are health concerns, health issues, pandemics, those are the places where people are going to get the most sick and the fatalities will be the largest. It's, it's, there's no, no, there cannot be any dispute, scientifically or otherwise, that that will be the outcome. So COVID has taught us a couple things. One, it's dangerous to live cooped up next to each other on top of each other, either in a single dwelling or in an office building, live or work, right? That that's more dangerous. Yes. Um, or get or get on a or get on a train uh, right. with a bunch of people. Okay. Twice a day. But it's also, and this article brings it out, also taught us that we we don't have to go to New York to do business, right? don't have to go to LA to do business that we can do things remotely that zoom works that other things work that business can carry on by the way you're a businessman a very successful businessman a very smart businessman has business quite apart from you know the obvious things the entertainment industry the leisure industry has business in general apart from those suffered from lack of face-to-face interaction some businesses have suffered. Uh, if you're uh, in the travel business, airlines, hotels, yeah. um, you have office buildings, which are predominantly, uh, you know, office buildings in urban areas. Yeah, that that business has suffered. No, if you're in a if you're in the restaurant business, it has suffered, no doubt. Um, but the corollary to that is have businesses succeeded and improved and thrived, and that also is true. Yes, the answer is yes. Which ones, for example? Well, I think it's more instructive to say, why have so many other businesses succeeded? Because that would mean someone has to have money to spend for those businesses. And what we are seeing is when people are leaving an apartment or some sort of housing in an urban core where their monthly rent or mortgage is four to $5,000, and they move somewhere else and their monthly mortgage is $1,500, that savings of $2,500 a month is so massive. And if you multiply that over not thousands, but millions of people, the amount of additional money to be spent, not we're not talking about someone getting an increase in salary. We're talking about someone maintaining their salary and reducing their costs by th- these amounts. These amounts are, equate to a $15 per hour increase of, of, of take-home pay. Interesting. Not $15 an hour minimum wage. $15 an hour increases what Interesting, you yeah. That is the reason why there are so many businesses that are thriving. Um, you know, automobiles, uh, automobile industry, people are selling cars. They didn't understand why they were selling cars. They realized they're selling a vast percentage. If you're in like the Tri-Cities area of, of Washington, um, by uh, Oregon and Washington and Idaho. Uh, I know car dealers there. They're selling a lot of cars. They're not selling them to people who live there. They're selling to people who have moved there in the last six to nine months. They've moved there and they bought a car. And they didn't use the government handout to buy it. They used it because they saved so much money of their other costs and they had that available to acquire that car. Yeah. And there's we're talking about trillions of dollars of wealth being destroyed being transmitted from look, who owns office buildings, who owns apartment buildings, who owns uh, these kinds of things. There's private equity firms. Yes, they're getting hurt. But who who is the person who buys a home and saves $2,500 a month? Somebody different. It's not a private equity firm. Yeah. Yeah. And the wealth transfer to the group of people that I'm describing is the largest we've seen in the history of the world. And that's why these other businesses are thriving. The wealth transfer... Give me the give me the uh, the, the two sub nouns there or subjects. The wealth transfer from whom to whom? Say that again. Largest in the history of the world. Wall Street, Wall Street, private equity, big business, top one percent people. Uh, two. I'm not going to use the word. Um, I'm not going to use the word middle class because I find that word to be kind of um, offensive. But when you're talking about a middle class, you're already talking about a class society. And I don't believe in a class society. And, and if you look right. at how people define middle class, it goes on and on and on and on. So I don't know. I'm going to, we're going to, let's come up with a different, it's the 70, let's call it the 75 million, the 
75 million, we'll call it that. They are making, they are not making more money. They are bringing home more money to the tune of about $30,000 per year per household. 30,000 per year per household. For every thousand households, that's 30 million a year. All right, all right. And you just keep doing the math. You end up with the hundreds of millions, if not billions, of annual increase of money in the pockets of the 75 million, not the one percenters, not private equity, not Wall Street, not government. Government could never have passed a bill to allow this kind of money to be in the pockets of, of this many people. I never could have happened. And this is what we have physically witnessed. I thought, uh, clarify something for me, you say this great transfer from Wall Street, but all I've heard from Democrats and a lot of the media over the last few years is the killing that the top 1%, 2%, 3% have had over the last few years, over the Trump years. Well, of course, they're, yes. They've, <laughs> so uh, when, when you and I have conversations, we actually talk about who, who is suffering who is succeeding, and that moves around. If if you're a democratic poli- democrat politician, you're going to just talk about um, you're going to you're going to you're going to you're going to create a villain, and the villain are the top one percent. You know, it's like, you know that's the reason westerns are such you know so popular. There's a there's a villain and there's a there's a hero. Well, they can keep repeating that over and over again, but it doesn't change the fact that what I just described in terms of and we're doing, by the way, um, we are doing this analysis to quantify exactly how much we're talking about. But there's in the hundreds of millions, if not billions, and valuation in the trillions of this kind of money going to, to the 75 million people who aren't watching the news, who aren't listening to political speeches, and they're, they're, they're making these choices. So, yes, Democrats are going to say that, just like they are going to give Bill Gates' company, Canada National Railway, the prize of being the number 10 most sustainable company in the world. Okay. Number 10, the most sustainable. They're, that, you know, they're going to give uh, a Governor Cuomo. Now, what did he get? What award did he get for his press conference? Sure, yeah, sure. sure. Uh, with the Pulitzer? Right. No, we talked about so that of earlier. Course, of course they're going to say that. But is this... They're, yes. Is, is this transfer out of the pockets of the 1% or does the 1% keep its money, and there's additional money, new money, uh, for that $75 million. Or is it a well, transfer? Both. Um, both. So if you're a, what they call a SPAC or a REIT or a private equity firm, and you own a bunch of hotels, um, you lost a lot of money. Okay. Uh, and if you own office buildings, probably lost a lot of money. If you own a bunch of uh, restaurant chains, because most of the big restaurants now are, are big ones are really aggregated by a company that owns several of them. Um, they've lost a lot of money. Uh, no doubt. There's no doubt. Now, will they be, you know, vanished off the face of the earth? No. They will find other ways to reconstitute their business or someone else will come in and acquire it and they'll restructure it. But have they lost money? Yes, they have. But I have never seen, you know, the, the most underrepresented political constituency are, are a dispersed group of people. You know, you, when you, you have a, you have a political, you have a, 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 someone fighting for you. If you, if you got a small group of people who are very loud, very vocal and can raise money and create a, a big scene, you get, you get political representation. If you're 75 million dispersed people all over the country, you don't get any political representation. Right. You're too dispersed. You're right. not organized. Right. They don't right. want right. to be right. organized. Right. They don't want to be organized. Yeah. But guess what just happened? Regardless of, of any, any assistance by anyone, this has just happened for them to them. And they're the cause of it because they're the ones who are making their decision independently to pack up and leave and go somewhere else. This gives them a bonus, as you pointed out. It's also not a, quote, cultural necessity anymore. Uh, if I'm going down a, a, a blind alley here, let me know. But I asked my sons, and you, know them, and you know them both. I said, you know, when you guys got out of school in the Marine Corps, my younger son, you got, went to New York. And when you got to New York, you know, you grew up around the Washington area. Everybody in New York, you knew everybody in New York because these are all the people you went to school with at Princeton and elsewhere. Because everybody has to do their New York thing. Right, a year or two years in New York as a trader or something. I said, is, yeah. that, is that still going on? And my older son said, nobody I know is going to New York. Nobody's going to New York. Um, 
So that need in the, in the brain, you know, you got to go to New York because that's where it's happening, you know. Uh, there's a line in a Henry James novel, Princess Casamassima, where the, the hero Hyacinth Robinson, this just occurred to me, says he was living in a backwater uh, in a small town in England, dreaming of the roaring vortex, which was London. Uh, and he had to get to London. And this has been, you know, a theme of, you know, of, of culture. You got to go to London. You got to go to Paris. You got to go to New York. Not anymore, I guess. Uh, by the yep. way, when you go to New York, I grew up in Brooklyn, which is, you know, not what most people think of as New York, think of Manhattan. When you go to New York and you hang around Manhattan, you see an awful lot of people, I'm running on here, but I'll stop, who are there who are not from New York, who are not from New York, and they're in town, and if you're midtown Manhattan, you see an awful lot of people from Alabama, Montana, Texas, all over the country, and they're in there for what, Joel? To shop, to go to dinner, and to go to shows. And they're not doing that anymore. There are no shows, and the restaurants are closing. And I don't know. I guess the shopping is limited too. Am I right about this? You're exactly exactly right. And I'll tell you, um, Silicon Valley has always touted technology as being allowing you, allowing people to do anything, anywhere, anytime. And yet, they also said you got to be in Silicon Valley because this is the center of all the you know. You got to be here. Well, you don't have to be here if yeah. you can do it anywhere. That that is the contradiction. It, it's anywhere, any anywhere, anytime, anything, and then but you have to be in Silicon Valley. But now we know Silicon Valley. Many of these companies are expanding outside of Silicon Valley for the reasons we've just discussed. Because people can't afford to live there. People they can't they can't house them. They can't do anything there. And they realize they don't. Silicon Valley companies don't need them to be there. Now, to the to the to the to the uh, uh, description of why people went to New York and do you have to be there or not? Um, what you're really t- I mean, there's really three ways that people try to distinguish between wealthier people, cities, and middle class and and and, and, and lower middle class sort of groups, which I find offensive. But they're really about you know, how much they make, um, you know, what their credentials are, where they went to school and what their cultural tastes are, which is what you were talking about. And so here you have this notion that if your cultural tastes are you live in a city because you have a Broadway shows, because you have, um, you know, opera, because you have uh, uh, certain kinds of museums and things like that, that in and of itself, that because your taste, your preference, is that kind of social interest by definition under some people's category you would be upper well, you know you'd be top one percent you'd be something significant now think about that for a second just because you you like that doesn't mean i mean it cannot possibly mean that you're any better or different than someone who doesn't like it it's yeah. a different taste now what we're we're when we look at amount of money people earn how much they, revenue they get well, obviously, if you make eighty thousand or seventy thousand dollars a year in one locale versus San Francisco, Seattle, L.A., or New York or Chicago, that's going to be different. So this notion that there's this ubiquitous understanding of what people, uh, what they make, what they what they choose, what their preferences are, is again nonsensical. And that's why the 75 million is making their own decision. And you're exactly right. Now there is no, now there is a health reason not to go pursue those kinds of things in those places. And, and we're, we're, we're looking, we're witnessing a seminal shift of how a lot of people in this, nothing even in this country, all over the world are, are making different choices. Will these cities come back? Sure, they're not going to go. They're not going to go away. Uh, now, um, Professor Kotkin has a much more positive view of this than me. Um, but the cities are not going to go away. They're not. But there's no reason why New York should be 12 million people. Why can't it be two two million or two and a half million? Yeah. There's no reason why why some the, the reason why we're seeing this this seminal shift is because for a, a, a couple of decades. All the urbanists and all the all the, uh, the progressives wanted everybody and, and told everyone. And the economists, like Paul Krugman, said, "You have to live here, and you cannot live and should not live anywhere else." I mean, China was the the, the professor who of urban planning who passed away from UCLA. His his last you know, work that he published 
was talking about the amazing, uh, you know, uh, the, the amazing um, uh, progression in, 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 in uh, China because they put all these people from the rural areas into all these huge cities. And that was, in his, in his mind, a status symbol of the progressive um, uh, improvement of China. And this guy was one of the lead urban planners in, in the United States. Well, why would that cause China to be something other than what they are just because a bunch of people moved into a big city? Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't make any sense. Well, what did you mean when you said Kotkin is more optimistic than you? About what and what? What's the comparison? What's he optimistic about that you're I, not? I'm, I've, been in, I've been in the real estate business long enough to know that the downtown areas of most major cities in the world were basically – non-existent. And almost everybody for the last two decades that graduated urban planning school was focused on how do we revitalize downtowns. I mean, even going to, into, small, you know, into smaller towns, like every single small town in America, the idea was how do we rekindle, revitalize our downtown? And it wasn't that long ago where downtowns were not even desirable and, and there was no reason for them. But all we've, all, all, all people have tried to do is revitalize them. And they've done a pretty good job of, it, of revitalizing them until people, but when you're revitalizing something, this goes back to politics. That doesn't mean that, that, that a downtown is the only choice you should have. It is one of many choices, yeah. and it's not the only one, and it shouldn't be the most important one. So because of the impetus put on downtown's urban, urbanization is the most important way and the only way to live, because of that, we're seeing – now, uh, let me give you another example if I could. San Francisco, which is – a, a, a ridiculous, a ridiculously run jurisdiction in America. Um, within the last month or two, they're proposing to require, mandate people, do people work outside of the office, meaning not come into the city 60% of the time. Now, people are already doing that, but San Francisco thinks they need to now pass some sort of law to mandate it. Who is the biggest opponent of that proposal? It is the extreme left-wing progressive environmentalists. Why? Because that will kill public transportation in the Bay Area because no one's going to use it. And then the follow-up is, well, but people aren't going to drive in there and we're not going to use that kind of stuff, so we're going to save CO2 emissions. And their, thing, their response to that, of all responses, is we don't know where people are going to drive and what we're trying to do is mandate people eliminate cars because if you have a car, you have a potential of increasing what they call vehicle miles travel. So the easiest way to reduce vehicle miles travel is to eliminate all cars and make people have their only choice being public transportation. This conversation, this argument goes on and on. And this is the reason why the 75 million are sick and tired of listening to leaders in urban cities. This is nonsense what they talk about. Yeah, yeah what, do you, what do you care whether the, there's a public transportation system or not if you're happy where you are, right? Right. And how about, how about Los Angeles? How about Los Angeles? They just elected uh, 60 days ago a new district attorney. And this new district attorney in Los Angeles has told every single – Los Angeles has got one of the largest district attorney uh, uh, offices in the world. A thousand lawyers, 2,000 support staff, 3,000 people. Wow. This guy just gets elected and tells every single one of these attorneys they are prohibited on cases of violent crime and cases of murder and the like. They are prohibited from pursuing special circumstances which might cause people to have longer terms or, or the death penalty. Prohibited, which has caused every single one of these attorneys to sue the newly elected district attorney. This is, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that happens in a city. What does he want? Leniency for everybody? He wants nobody to be in jail ever oh, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 the, the, all the all the district attorneys that work for for LA County um, have have uh, sued him because they are required by law under certain circumstances to pursue those things that the new DA said he, they are prohibited from from pursuing. So now we're going to have a new court case. So that's really wacky. I mean, he's really wacky. <laughs> He uh, and and you know where he came from? He came from. He was the I think he was the the, uh, the chief of police in San Francisco. He became when Kamala Harris became uh, moved up to another post. He became the district attorney and took over her um, her position. Yeah. 
And then when they had a new election, somebody else got elected. So he came down to LA and ran for this office. And he just, they just recycle these, these, these nutcases from city to, from urban city to urban city. I wanted to close by asking you the political implications of this. What, what does this mean politically? Red, blue. If people are moving from New York to Tulsa, okay, or New York to Raleigh, yeah. which they seem to be doing, or New York to Sarasota, um, I hear people in uh, Oklahoma, North Carolina, and Florida saying, come down, but leave your blue politics behind. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, having developed uh, uh, communities for almost 40 years in Arizona, Colorado, and Nevada, I've witnessed firsthand people move there uh, from someplace which is untenable, and they move there, and then they say they vote the way they used to vote. So that's true. Which they don't change, do they? <laughs> um, they don't change how they vote, even though they – people generally – in, you know, people, if people are living this, in, in, the, in, in the residential real estate world, we know this because we've done the studies for 50 years. People don't, if they're doing well, they don't move somewhere else so they can do a little bit better. Typically, someone will move, have a dramatic move from an urban area to a suburban area or a state to a state because where they are is so untenable, they have to try something new. That's, that's a generalization, but it's generally why people move. So all these people are moving from something they acknowledge is untenable. Yet when they go there, um, there is no uh, uh, there's no obligation for them to change party affiliation or change uh, preferences or tastes or things like that. And uh, surprisingly, that's what happens. Colorado went from a red state to a blue state. Arizona now has two uh, Democrat uh, uh, senators, Nevada. You know what that's like, Clark County. Um, so politically, people moving are not necessarily going to change their their affiliations. But what that also means is, I believe part of that is the Republican Party, if they want to seize on this, needs to spend be more aware and more awake as to these preferences and tastes and norms. Yeah. And if they are, they can certainly attract a lot more people than the 75 million that just voted for uh, the president in the last election. And they asked people to examine at, in some depth why they left and maybe maybe yes. readjust their political uh, voting uh, habits based on, on that on that reflection. Yeah, I mean, my home, our home state yeah, now and, is, and, is North Carolina. Solid red state, not anymore, you know. Yeah, and, and to your point, I mean, I think, I mean, I really like the way you said it and what you said. Um, you know, let's not... Uh, People are what we what we're seeing with people moving is a tremendous individuality. They're individuals who love liberty and freedom. We know that. So one of these two parties needs to start talking about that more and actually quit talking about it, but do something about it and recognize it, acknowledge it, embrace it. And that's once whichever party decides to take that path, I think I think they'll be successful. Let's be very specific here for a second and commit some political action. You know, I'm a fan of Rod DeSantis in Florida, and uh, Florida is thriving. He was on TV yesterday saying he thinks the president wants to welcome illegals across the border but doesn't want people to travel to Florida. <laughs> That's the border they can't cross. <laughs> and I you think he may have a point given some of the directives of the president. But, uh, but a friend of mine who sat with uh, Governor DeSantis at the Super Bowl said you can't believe the amount of money that's come into Florida lately. Uh, companies moving to Florida, people of wealth moving to Florida. Uh, it's really amazing. So good for the state. All I could think of is the conversation we were just having, Joel, which is um, how many people coming there with all their money are bringing their political attitudes, which are not, not the kind of attitudes that will put Ron DeSantis back in office or elevate him to a higher office. Um the, the vote, I remember when he ran against that guy who turned out to be this, you know, gay crack addict, was like 1% or less. So how much influx shifts that vote if people are coming from blue states with blue voting habits? That's a real worry, right? It's a real thing. It's, it's, it, it's, it's, um, it's not only a real, it's absolutely a real worry. And I mentioned the three states, Arizona, Nevada, Colorado. We've, we've watched it. 
we, we see it. It absolutely, that, it, it's not only a worry, it's a trend. Now, the question then is, what do you do to change that trend? Again, you're start. I mean, if, I'm not a politician. As a businessman, if I saw I had millions of people moving to my state from another state because it was so awful, I would spend every waking moment making sure the message that my party that I was with, that I supported, would, would hone in on that, would spend time on it, yeah. understand it, not sit back and hire the same uh, pollsters and political consultants who are telling me what my message ought to be. You know, I'm, I'm a, um, I'm, I, when I go do something, I, I get market studies. Uh, for the things I do, which is the same thing as hiring a political consultant and a pollster. I read that market study and spend maybe less than 1% of my time pursuing their recommendation. You know, people who run companies don't listen to what other people say to them because a lot of the times what other people are saying to you is something that's safe. It's okay. We've acknowledged things are changing. If things are changing, then change. One thing that has not changed, every single one of these people moving to Florida, there's no doubt what they, what they believe in. They believe in choice, in, uh, 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 you know, their, their free, free will, to exercise their free will. They, they believe in liberty. They believe in, in aspirations and opportunities. That's what they believe in. So they got to put signs up saying, welcome to Florida. We're glad you're here. You believe in freedom and liberty and aspiration. Remember that, and please adjust your voting habits on that basis. <laughs> or please remember what you thought was represented. Please remember what you thought represented those ideals. They don't. Yeah. Yeah. Does anybody, I mean, you know, part of, part of the problem is, is uh, I mean, I got, I got to give, I got to give Bill Gates credit. He has hired a whole lot of people to write articles about how you own a railroad that moves chemicals, petroleum and coal and fertilizer and become the number 10 best sustainable com- company in the world. I got to give him credit for being able I to do that. you. Yeah. Yeah. Remember where you came from and why you left. Remember why you left. Yeah, remember why you left. Good. We'll send it to Governor DeSantis. Put it up on the billboards. Thank you. I mean, you want to you, you want to have I promise that no no district attorney's office in Florida is going to allow someone to succeed like the guy in L.A. Yeah. Well, I hope so. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, when you look at the map, you know, look at the voting map, you know, and it's all red except for concentrations of dark blue on the coast and a few other areas. You say, well, at least they're all isolated there. Well, not anymore because they're leaving. And they've left right. and gone to Nevada and Colorado and Arizona, as you say. Look at the changes they've made. So that's, that's a problem. So that's why... One of the reasons that uh, Mr. Kotkin's more optimistic than you are, you're worried that one, one aspect of this movement is could be uh, diluting, diluting the red, if you will. Yeah, people, people do. I, 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 I've just seen it. I've witnessed it empirically. Um, people move, you know, <laughs> people move. They move somewhere else and they, they, uh, they forget. They forget. They move somewhere else and things are great, but they just, they just forget what, uh, what they left. And how it got there. That's why, you know, um, that's why it takes people, uh, Bill, like you and Brian Kennedy to remain vigilant on explaining the topic of how we got there, because um, not a lot of people are going to are going to spend their time on that topic. Yeah, maybe individual citizens, too. I remember the little grocery store and the beach place that we used to rent, Carolina. My wife is at the cash register. She, you know, she's North Carolina, actually South Carolina born, grew up in North Carolina. The lady at the register was hurrying people along, and Lane was saying, how are you today? She said, lady, I don't have time for that. And Mrs. Bennett said, where are you from? She said, Massachusetts. She said, yeah, you know, you need to learn to talk a little more politely here in the South. We chat with people. You know, we talk. We don't just move them along. You know, maybe maybe you'd just be happier going back to Massachusetts. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, it, t- maybe it takes a little of that, too, which is, you know, get out of here, you know. I've heard working people in North Carolina say to me, and my wife says, great compliment. They said, the, that guy who came to fix the, the windows and the doors said, uh, Mr. Bennett's a Yankee, but I'll say this for him. He's a good Yankee. 
<laughs> well, presumption you, you is that you're not. Something. Presumption is that you're not. You know. Yeah, that's the presumption. It's the worst of the worst is the presumption. Yeah. You just reminded me of something Mark Cuban recently said, or had said a long time ago. He said it again um, that you know people to communicate with him to get in touch with him. He only does it by text or email. He, he, he's not going to pick up your call. He's not going to meet with you. He's not going to do anything. He says, you know what? It's not efficient. It's not, uh, you know, it's not, I don't have time for that. Yeah. You want to talk to me, send me an email, send me a text. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I have a brother who spent his entire career as the training actors in voice. The entire, the entire focus on communicating is, how you how you look, how you see, how you sound, how you yeah. present one another, you know, with each other. The 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 inner, the, the yeah. interest of that, the, the, the you know, the, your voice is an instrument to communicate yeah. your you know your your thoughts. And, and and I got a guy like Mark Cuban saying, "Send me a text." Yeah. I mean that's that's it's it's exactly what uh, Elaine was meaning. Yeah, that's right. There's other ways to communicate. Right, better that are that are just as important. It sure would kill the hell out of podcast too. So couldn't have a good conversation <laughs> like we just did. Thank you, Mr. Farkas. I love talking with you and Claude. You are listening to the Bill Bennett Show. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org. Presentdangerchina.org. Well, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. Quiz for you now, Claude. Okay. You can follow me on Twitter at... Uh, at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just, Just search... Search Bill Bennett. And there they are. Yep. Oh, those are easy ones. <laughs> Please feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's Bill Bennett Podcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and your friends. We'll catch up next week. 